1: a podcast that provides a voice for the voiceless.
2: Fifth grader Amy Maholovic went to Bay Village Middle School on Friday wearing green pants, a lavender
1: and green sweatshirt, and carrying a denim and red backpack. Police found Amy's bike locked up at school, but they haven't found Amy. Well, we're doing this to show Amy that we're all hoping for and hoping that she gets returned home safely. And I know we're all sort of scared, you know, and that something like this could really happen in our community.
2: This quiet upscale community is totally unaccustomed to this type of trauma. The Mahalovic abduction is on the minds and lips of everyone in town and authorities fear that with each day that passes, lessens the likelihood of her safe return. Amy's abductor has been described as a white male, 35 to 45 years old, approximately 5'8", and wearing glasses.
0: I, in fact, would like to ask anybody in the Cleveland area to light a white candle for Amy
2: each day. Um, I think it will help light her way home. If there are candles burning all over, she's got to come back.
3: She's got to come back.
2: It was anything but business as usual today at Bay Village Middle School. Shortly after leaving here last Friday, 10-year-old Amy Maholovic was abducted. Whoever is responsible is out there. We know that they have a great interest in what's being covered in the media, and uh, we certainly don't want to do anything to tip them off as to uh, the course of direction of our investigation. A number of law enforcement officials, including the FBI, were here for tonight's memorial service. In addition to paying their respects, there was also the gruesome outside possibility that Amy's killer might be among those who came to pay their respects. Bay Village police and the FBI aren't thumbing their nose at any clues, including the remotest of possible leads. Right now, time is the enemy as the abductor's trail grows colder by the day.
3: There's uh, frustration because the uh, murder hasn't been found. There's a lot of anger over that, too.
1: Amy's posters up all over town will eventually come down. So will the ribbons tied up for Amy that are now worn and torn? Hello and welcome to episode 101 of Who Killed? My name is Bill Huffman, and this is a Slow Burn Media Podcast. On this week's episode, we're going to take a look back at my last interview with Chief Mark Spetzel of the Bay Village Police Department, and now he was the officer that spoke with Amy Maholovic's class on the day that she was abducted, and then he eventually became the chief of police. Now, since then, he has retired, and this was probably one of the last interviews he gave about the case, and it is interesting to hear his perspective 30 years on uh, investigating this case, and it's always intriguing to hear from an actual officer who was boots on the ground and involved with the day-to-day operations when it came to investigating this unfortunate murder. So, again, this is an interview that I conducted with Chief Mark Spetzel when he was still the chief of police at Bay Village, and he, again, has since retired, and in this episode we do talk about what his possible future employment situation may be so hopefully hopefully things will uh work out and he will be eventually back on the case but uh that is yet to be seen so uh until then enjoy this interview with chief of police mark spetzel Of the city of Bay Village Well, I've got
4: I've got uh, extensive collection So I've been with the department almost 34 years So I was here and a young Relatively young officer at the time That this uh, crime occurred And uh, as a patrol officer On October 27, 1989 I had actually uh, spoken To a class at the middle school And uh, later learned that uh, Amy Mihalik was in that class The same day that she was later abducted so my connection goes back to the very beginning. And then um, at some point after, um, you know, we're just gonna fast forward here. Uh, I became a detective lieutenant, was put in charge of the detective bureau, and then it became, case fall, fell under my purview. And so for the next 15 years or so, I was the main investigator along with uh, past investigators and the FBI on the case. So, and now uh, as police chief, I oversee all that and um as as you and I have discussed in the past, a little frustrating because you can't work the case like you'd like to now as a police chief because you have other responsibilities so i've been there since day one basically
1: yeah literally
4: literally yeah
1: literally since day one
4: yep yeah. uh it was from nineteen ninety nine um through two thousand thirteen basically and what i would well of course you had other cases, so we had the Mahalovic case always uh out there obviously has not been resolved yet. So you have all your daily other activities, other crimes, uh, whether they be you know burglaries or rapes, and we've had a couple homicides during that time. So all that goes on, but in the background, you always have the Amy Mahalovic case. And it's a case that comes up um, uh, often daily, depending on what you're doing with the case, uh, and if not daily, weekly. Um, so there's always something happening with the Mahalovic case during the, the, that time period. There were time periods during the investigation where we would um, do a major focus on on some aspect of the case, whether it's revisiting the facts, whether it's, you know, we talked about DNA in the past, or whether it's uh, looking at a certain aspect of, of something and, and really drill down on it. And during those times, we'd spend days just doing that, doing nothing but the Mahalova case for the whole day. And that's not only me, but that's the other detectives, that's uh, prior detectives, that's the FBI, and it's, you know, it's labs, it's everybody assisting. So the case has always been um, moving forward, uh, and it's sometimes heavily and other times just maybe weekly following up on a tip that comes in.
1: More glacier-based. Yeah. Now, did you guys have any leads down in Ashland County area? I mean, did were they, as far as the authorities go, were they, did they work with you guys at all as far as, you know, tips when the when the body was found.
4: So we established a secondary kind of command post down there with the FBI and Ashland County Sheriff's Department. So we actually separated leads. So uh, leads were always coming in up here in Northeast Ohio. When the body was found down in Ashland, we set set up the secondary command post, and leads started coming into that. And there were a lot of leads that came into that, obviously, because that's where the body was found. Obviously, they were all still coordinated up here with our, our organization, but a lot of leads that came in down there were followed up by agents, sheriff's deputies, FBI agents who were working down there, as well as we had um, at least one officer from our department and local FBI working in assistance with that. So it was always a coordinated effort uh, to do that.
1: So you guys always had work together?
4: Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And, and, And just regardless of what organization, we We've worked with many, many other law enforcement agencies on this case because they'll they'll provide us information, or maybe we need their assistance with something. So
1: now I know that we've talked about DNA in the past, and we haven't gotten you know you're not obviously not going to get into specifics right. about what you have, but when was it that you realized that you had it? Now, in 1989, were you conscientious of that at that time because it hadn't been used in trial right. yet?
4: DNA was was certainly in its infancy back in 89. It was nowhere near what it is today. But even back then, you know, everybody knew that blood evidence was important, you know, e- even then. Um, so you have a, a body that is recovered in a field that's um, decomposed. Um, you, you understand that a lot of the forensic evidence has probably been um, deteriorated, uh, uh, lost, you know, just from the period of time, the weather conditions and everything else. So, But you treat that body scene, recovery scene, a- as a crime scene, and you try to collect everything you can. So they did that. They did their due diligence there as far as collecting any evidence. Just like as we sit here today, we have no idea what the technology is going to be 15 years from now. Right. So if we could respond to a, a homicide now, there are things that we probably will do And 15 years from now, we'll look back and say, "Well, we should have maybe done that." Well, we didn't know. We don't know what that technology is going to be, but we all know that the sensitivity of DNA is 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 only going to improve. You know, we have touch DNA now, where certain cells, just from person walking into a room and touching something, now leaves leaves DNA. So you have to, in your mind, you have to say to yourself, "We have to protect this scene to the best of our ability because we don't know what." that's going to be. And I believe they did that back in 1989.
1: Yeah, I mean, with the high-profile case that it was, I would think that they kind of dotted their I's and crossed their T's in many different ways. Right. Uh, now, as far as when they went down to the scene the day that she was found, do you know how many officers and people were down in that area collecting evidence? And
4: I don't, I don't know the exact numbers. I will tell you that um, by prior arrangement, if, if it was determined her body was ever recovered, that the Cuyahoga County Medical's Office or coroner's office at that time would do the autopsy. So that was predetermined. So when it was determined, it was her body, um, her body was transported to the Cuyahoga County uh, coroner's office. Uh, The Ashland County Sheriff's Office was responsible for maintaining the the crime scene down there, and they did a really nice job of that. It it was maintained, gosh, I can't give you an exact, at least a half mile radius around where her body was found. Um, they, They... Because it was their jurisdiction, they had primary jurisdiction there, but obviously they knew it was our crime. So we assisted, the FBI assisted, the Ashland County uh, Coroner's Office, the County Coroner's Office, Ashland County Sheriff's Department. All of them were involved in that search of the scene, recovery of the body, and and subsequent investigation of that, that area.
1: And and that's when you found the curtain and the blanket that came out in 2016. Right, because we
4: collected virtually everything around that crime scene, and those were found, you know, down the road as the as the wind, as the wind blows and as the water flows. It was found down the road, so those were collected at that time, along with other pieces that probably have no relevancy. But you don't know. Again, we, we look back and we say, well, I wish we would have done that. They collected everything that didn't didn't naturally grow there. They collected it.
1: Yeah, you said how many bags or boxes? <coughs>
4: there, there were hundreds of items just collected from that area. Uh, I, I do not off the top of my head. If I'm looking at it, I think it's probably about three and a half feet by about five feet. Okay. Yeah, and it's a homemade blank, or it's a homemade curtain made out of what looks to be like a bedspread. Yeah. Uh Very unusual. It's not something you'd buy in a store. It was handmade. Oh yeah. Somebody made this curtain, and I'm sure it has a match somewhere or had a match somewhere, which is why we put it out publicly. You know, it's such a unique item that hopefully somebody would recognize it. Now, we've not had that exact match. You know, it's never come across our plate yet, but we're still hoping for that.
1: Now, as far as the blanket goes, same connection, though, With the, as far as the dog hairs?
4: The, no, just on the curtain itself. The blanket didn't have any connection, but it was found no. in the same relative okay. area. No, just other than the same exact area, vicinity. and you, yeah, and you think about the fact that you know these were these could have been lying there for we don 't know how long months and months right, exposed to the elements well, DNA is sensitive it, it, it is ear, easily um, destroyed, so anything out in the elements has potential for being destroyed, so one of the things we look for is um, uh, is there a potential down the road with some new technology? where we're not identifying DNA on this item currently, but in the future will it be such a sensitive test that we can identify something we couldn't identify today. So that's why you keep all that stuff. That's why you reanalyze it, which is what we've been doing over the years. Every time there's a new new breakthrough, we're looking for another avenue to pursue as far as forensics and DNA. The
1: first time that we talked, I think that cases were starting i think the golden state killer had just been solved but it did feel like cases were being solved on the regular and i felt like amy's case might be one of those cases i'm you know after a year of that are you are we still waiting for the technology that technology isn't what's going to solve this the technology
4: of today isn't what's probably going to solve it for us we're going to we're still looking for the technology of tomorrow but we know it's coming we know that they're advancing rapidly and the other thing is you've got to be careful you don't destroy all your evidence. You know, pin all your hopes on one possible technology. Right. Because if you get rid of all your evidence, then what do you have? You know. And, and so you've got to be really careful on picking the right time, being very judicious in the use of your, of your technology, because you want to, when you do it, you want to make sure it's right.
1: So currently the familial genealogy that's been used to solve these other cases isn't something that could be used currently.
4: Well, not not in the future, possibly. Right. But where where we stand now? No. Okay. You know, it's a very complicated. I don't want to get into all the details of it, but because you know, it's like when techno, you know, when when you have this coded database, right? You got all these convicted uh, criminals with their DNA in a database. You would think, well, you have a crime scene, you just pull off DNA that is unknown to the victim, and you plug it in the database, you solve the crime. Well, it's not always that simple, especially when you have a body that was lying in a field for an extended period of time, exposed to the elements, and a lot of the potential DNA probably got destroyed, uh, you know, or contaminated, or whatever the case may be. So that complicates things. If you have a crime scene that happened yesterday, that's a whole different story. Um, and then again, over time, even even if you collect it properly. We're talking thirty years that DNA's been sitting around and even that deteriorates in the best of conditions. So again, you you gotta be really careful.
1: So when the body was found, was it the Cuyahoga County coroner that actually removed the body then? Or was it Ashland County?
4: Ashland County removed Ashland County coroner's office removed the body, It was transported up by private ambulance up to Cuyahoga County.
1: Always wondered, just yeah. because I know that Emory, I mean the one autopsy report or coroner's report that I've seen as far as the cause of death goes, I mean, it looked like blunt force trauma and, uh, you know, a couple stab wounds to the neck, and then she bled out. I mean, it, I mean, is that what basically...
4: The blunt force trauma, they, they never really determined if that was fatal or not. Probably not. Okay. But, um, and, and, you know, we don't know if it was, if the blunt force trauma was before she was stabbed, um, after she was stabbed. In other words, you could be stabbed and fall to the ground and hit your head. And if it's at the same time and your heart's still beating, you can't necessarily tell that that bruise or that that trauma was caused by uh, before or after that event. So it's very, very close, paramorum, perimortem. So um, that's really not been determined. Definitely the stab wounds were, were the fatal part of that crime.
1: And to create like a stab wound that would, I mean, basically they must have cut the carotid artery or... and. Doesn't take a big knife to do that.
4: Uh, so it was a pretty devastating. There were a couple stab wounds to the neck, and they were pretty devastating injuries. And...
0: Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino.
4: Well, again, deterioration, uh, decomposition, you know, but uh, they were, it wouldn't have taken a large knife. We don't think it was a, a large, large knife or anything like that. It wouldn't have taken much to do the damage that, that occurred. You can tell, I think the, the wounds indicate it was a personal crime. Uh, it indicates, well, the crime itself, if we go back to the abduction and things like that, the individual who did this was very calculating and planning, uh, you know, they, 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 Really planned the event out. They groomed her. Do you her,
1: think that her, you know, able to get her there? Met, like more of a, how do I put this? But was I think what happens in like these impulsive? cases is they have a, I mean, does, a different like vision
4: of what a relationship is going like to be like with wound. a child than you and I would ever perceive it to be, and those never work out, of course. And and so we believe it was a sexually motivated crime: the kidnapping and the abduction and the eventual murder. So something happened didn't go the way that he expected, and he had to kill her. And, you know, that's what we believe happened. Uh, and, and so there's a personal aspect to that, that type of crime. And that is a perfect
1: segue to introduce this week's sponsor, BetterHelp. Having dealt with anxiety and depression for most of my life, I know a thing or two about the importance of mental health. So today I'm pleased to tell you about a great company. Is there something that interferes with your happiness or it's preventing you from achieving your goals, BetterHelp Online Counseling is there for you. Connect with your professional counselor in a safe and private online environment. It's so convenient, you can get help on your own time and at your own pace. And now you can schedule secure video or phone sessions, plus chat and text with your therapist. With over 3,000 U.S. licensed therapists across all 50 states, BetterHelp is there for you. If you're not happy with any of your counselors for any reason at any time, you can get a new one for no additional charge. They even have apps for your computer or smartphone. Whether you're suffering from depression, anger, stress, anxiety, LGBT matters, or self-esteem issues, they have a licensed professional counselor for you, and everything you share is confidential. Best of all, it's a truly affordable option. Who Killed Amy Maholovic listeners get 10% off your first month with discount code WHO. So why not get started today? Go to BetterHelp.com slash WHO. Simply fill out a questionnaire to help them assess your needs and get matched with a counselor you'll love. That's BetterHelp.com slash WHO. That's interesting as far as, as far as the personal aspect of it goes. Because if he just, I mean, he groomed her, but... If you know, if, if he didn't know her,
4: yeah. He I, obviously we know there was a caller calls made, yeah, and uh, that process of grooming occurred, and we don't know over how many calls. We know at least one, probably more, but this is an individual that is that excels at grooming kids because um, you think about Amy, who you know had a, a fairly protective mother. They had a password if anybody's going to pick her up. Uh, you know, um, she had to call home every day after she got home. These are indicators that they knew that there's dangers out in the world and they're doing what they can to protect their daughter, yet still Amy, despite that, meets a stranger. We don't know what it was in her mind, but for us it was a stranger, and goes shopping. And so that's a that's quite a change from her normal behavior. So he had to have made her feel very comfortable to get in that car and leave with him.
1: Yeah, it really leaves a lot of question into how he could have gotten that trust so Correct. quickly.
4: And that's it, and probably through grooming that he has had prior practice doing, which indicates he probably has other attempts or he has other crimes that he's committed where he's groomed young children. Um, so that's why we always look at past crimes, you know, to see if there's anything or, or crimes that occurred after the fact that match up with ours. Uh, even re- remotely, this is probably an individual that started making phone calls. It could have been sexually motivated phone calls. It could have been voyeurism. There's all kinds of precursor criminal behavior that he could have been involved in. So these things are always looked at when we get a tip or lead. We're always looking and doing background work to see what other activities they may have been involved with.
1: Yeah, that's one of the cases, one of the M.O.s that I've like get to see at least repeated since then. I mean, I, I know technology at that time was changing pretty rapidly as far as the phone went, and, you know, obviously things could move online, and that's a whole other ball of wax. I did come across a story in Toronto, though, that happened three years prior to Amy's, which was the uh, Alison Perrot case, okay. and she was called at home, groomed, told that he was going to conduct a... He was a reporter or a photographer and wanted to take a picture for the upcoming track event. But she was 11 and, you know, same exact end result.
4: Yeah, that's the type of behavior that these individuals during that time frame would have exhibited. And as you said, today, that'd probably be the Internet. They'd be using the Internet to contact and make those connections. And before the telephone and all that, it it was playgrounds, you know. And so as things evolve, their methods evolve. And, you know, there's a very good possibility that this individual who who groomed Amy and made the phone call has moved moved on to the Internet or something like that. That's very possible.
1: You started in, what, 85? 80, 85. 85. okay. So that was like the heart of Stranger Danger. And where did the whole Stranger Danger yeah, I don't, and all that stuff I don't know
4: what the case or cases were that did that. I, I really have never looked at that, but certainly... You know, anybody who's ever been a parent, your number one responsibility is to keep your kids safe, right? You know, uh, have them grow up to be to be safe. And um, I think when you start hearing about these cases, of course, today's media, you hear about everything. Mm-hmm. And you know, true or not, you hear about everything that goes on out there, and it makes you even more aware. So I think that was just beginning back in that time frame.
1: Just more communication between. Just
4: more avenues of communication and more stories being out there. You know, crime has always occurred. It's always been around. It's just how it's presented to the public and how they find out about it has changed dramatically with social media and the instantaneous news and everything else.
1: I definitely feel like, you know, with the coverage, I mean, just in the 80s, being a kid that grew up in the 80s, I mean, it was like stranger danger was every day. It was, you know, this, that, and the other. And, I mean, I know that there were cases like, you know, Adam Walsh... um, and and then, and then you, had get, you guys actually had John Walsh come up and do yeah, he did a, um, a segment on yeah. America's Most Wanted. Right. Uh, you know, it's it's one of those I mean it has to drive you nuts. I mean, not to say what everybody is thinking, but you know, to sit here 30 years later.
4: So there's a level of frustration because we feel like we've done everything that we could possibly do. Uh, we, develop, we, we devoted resources from literally the minute she walked in the door and said her child was missing. An extraordinary amount of resources were developed. So it's not like you, you look back and say, man, we just didn't do a very good job on this. We didn't do this. We didn't do that. We did things that were cutting edge at the time, let alone everything that you would normally expect. And we devoted a, a ton of resources to it. We're a small department, 24 officers. Mm-hmm. But the fact is we had the, the assistance of the state, and the federal government and every surrounding law enforcement agency helping us, so we had this force multiplier. So it really wasn't just because we were small we didn't we didn't couldn't do it. We had everybody assisting, so we had the resources, we had the the manpower, um, and and we utilized all of that. So the frustration comes in is you did everything you possibly can, yet it's still not resolved. That's where the frustration is.
1: Yeah, and one of my one of the podcasts, <clears throat> excuse me, that inspired me to to do a story about Amy was was in the dark and they covered the Jacob Wetterling case and you know that happened like 4 days 5 days prior to Amy's and it was a young boy riding his bike and and that was a case where the department dropped the ball and like you could t- you can they actually interviewed the the guy and looked in his car and moved on and you know it was one of those things that like it came up and it's not to say that like if Amy's killer is eventually caught, that his name won't be found in the database. Oh, it
4: it could very well, because we have literally thousands and thousands and thousands of names, you know, so it's very possible that that could be the case, sure.
1: Yeah, and so that was a pure, you know, a case of they didn't do it right. So it does have to be
4: agonizingly
1: frustrating for you to be just knowing that you dotted drives and crossed your T's and had the FBI here literally the next day.
4: And that is, that is it's not only frustrating for current investigators, but past investigators who poured their heart and soul into solving this and, you know, went on and, and had to leave their service without doing that. And it's, it, it, and there's been a few of those, and, and certainly that affects them as well. Uh, but there are people that will always come back, and I'm in contact with a lot of them. They'll always come back and help. If we said, hey, you know, you worked on a part of this, and, um, you know, it, it's come back up. Do you mind coming in? Oh, they'd be here in a second. There's no doubt in my mind.
1: Yeah, and that's a good segue into where things stand with Torzny and, you know, special-aged Torzny and his right. involvement.
4: So Phil Torsney has been working on it. He was, he was on the case back in 80, 89. Uh, he worked an aspect of the case, and, of course, his his job was not the name of case back then, but he worked on a good part of it, continued to work on it throughout his career, even up through retirement. Um, and he's come back and helped us, and, and uh, he's been a tremendous asset. He's a, he's a dogged investigator, great guy. Uh, he's some, definitely somebody you want on your team. So we've had the ability to, to utilize his expertise and knowledge, and um, he's been a great asset for us. And, and um, he'll continue to work. He'll, he'll continue to do what he can to help us. So when a there's case a, transfers from one agent to the, to the next, do they get years. like a refresher uh, on the case? Has changed and do they like time, come in and talk to you and say, hey, this is, I'm the so new So we guy. have a point of contact at the Cleveland office.
1: Now as far as the grant money goes.
4: Grant money's run out. Um, you know, the city has helped pay for some of his services as well, and, and we'll try to continue to do what we can. But, you know, there's no unlimited pot of money anywhere for anything. So we do what we can. We certainly see them quite a bit and talk with them.
1: Yeah, I was wondering what that kind of relationship was. It's
4: a good relationship, and it's often it's often agents we knew before. Okay. Uh, but as they get promoted or move on or get transferred, whatever it is, somebody new is assigned. And often when that new person is assigned, it's somebody we know, you know, in the Bay Village Police Department because we we know the agents, um, a lot of them anyway. And so we're already familiar with them, and generally they're all familiar with the case too because they have. If they get a tip that we need assistance, they, it's not just one person that helps. It's whoever in the office can help. Right. So the case is well known in the Cleveland office okay. uh, amongst the, 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 the team there. And so um, everybody's familiar with it. It's just that there is one person assigned as the point person to coordinate the activities and help with the investigation.
1: Thank you so much to Chief Mark Spetzel and the Bay Village Police Department for allowing me to interview them about the Amy Mahalovic case and again this is unsolved murder of a 10 year old girl that is currently now 31 years old and it is about that time that somebody steps forward and confesses or turns somebody in but please if you are familiar with anybody involved in this case Please contact the authorities at the Bay Village Police Department at 440-871-1234. Or you can contact the FBI at 1-800-CALL-FBI. And again, I drop new episodes of Who Killed every Friday. And if you guys are interested in supporting the podcast, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button on the left-hand side of SlowBurnMedia.com. And that is slow minus the W. You can also contribute to the show with the Venmo app with my username at Bill-Huffman-3. There will also be a link in the show notes for you guys. And I am serious when I tell you that every contribution, big or small, really does help keep these slow-burn podcasts on the air. And if you want to leave a review, that helps as well. So wherever you listen to your favorite shows those five stars help keep the cases that I cover in the spotlight and if you'd like to stay up to date on the cases that I have covered as well as the new shows that I have in the pipeline please follow me on Twitter at BillHuffman3 thank you so much again for listening and until next week be healthy and of course stay safe